to the open side. Karim Bete. Lovely here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Good evening and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby, where the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm your host, Ando, and tonight things are pretty simple. They're intimate. It's just myself and Lockie as Mitch is six. So, Lockie, I've got my candles here. You've got your beer. I've got my wine. It's going to be a nice romantic evening. How are you? Well, it's good. And we need to relax. We need to unwind because it has been a fairly stressful 48 hours on the footy front. So I'm enjoying a bit of post-game therapy with you, Ando. Yeah, mate. Um, I'm reaching across the virtual table and just holding your hand and stroking. It's going to be good, mate. We're going to have a nice night. And we're going to release the stress of this weekend because I don't know about you, but at the end of the Wallabies match against New Zealand, I was heartbroken. I was despondent. I was just back in that pit of, of course, it bloody happened. (laughs) Very similar boat. I think there was almost an aura of fear about being in the lead by such a margin at halftime. You go, Oh, not this is great. We're ahead. It's a now, how do we lose this one today? And it would just nibbling away at the back of my mm. mind. But there was so much hope. And, and here we are again a three point loss and a, a golden opportunity missed in New Zealand. It makes me, makes me think of that Matrix scene where Agent Smith has Neo down, kind of like in, a, in, a, in between a train tracks. He's like, You hear that, Mr. Anderson? It's the sound of inevitability. Except Neo doesn't jump out of the way and he does get taken out by the train. It's like every Wallaby supporter ever. Because you just know that the All Blacks are coming and you know that they're going to be able to turn it around. And so that was and is what's going to be what we're talking about this evening. And it's going to be a relatively short one because all we want to do is talk Bledisloe. And all we want to do is have a little bit of a prediction about what some of the big uh, inclusions or exclusions in the Rugby World Cup Wallaby squad, which is going to be getting announced on Thursday, may well have. So, Lockie, if you're all good, mate, we might dive straight on into the Bledisloe 2 match. Sound good? Sounds good. Let's rip this band-aid off. Let's go. Lucky to start this off, mate, I want to tell you a story. And I want to tell you a story of the first minute and a half of the game because it, is, uh, it, was, it was something of near perfection in Australian attacking rugby and we don't see it often and for that it needs to be celebrated. So w- will you indulge me? Please, I'm all ears. All right. So the kickoff happens and unlike many kickoffs over the last month, we actually regather it. Andrew Kellaway comes up right down the middle of the pitch, collects it, falls to the ground, defenders cover him. Tate then, after one more hit-up, does an incredibly well-weighted box kick. Not his forte, but obviously he's been working on it. And who gets up in the air and recovers the ball? Perfectly contestable, Mark Noanganitawasi. After that, Tommy Hooper enforces a really good attacking run on the Kiwi defensive line. There's quick ball. Andrew Kellaway gets gain line, and then Bell forces the error from Tamaniti Williams, who's offside at the ruck. From the line-out, there are two hit-ups. Then we play it through the hands to Marika Corombetti, who scores the try in the left-hand corner. 
literally every single thing we did in that phase of play within the first two minutes was to plan, well executed, accurate, with no errors from the Aussies. And we got the immediate try against the All Blacks and we were up 0-7 after, yeah, 7-0 after two and a half minutes. Have you seen a better start from Wallaby's team within the last two, three years? I haven't. No one has. And it's probably the quickest try we've scored in a Bledders low since Izzy Folau's intercept um, mm. in Dunedin 2016. So it was, it was a beautiful thing to watch. Now all we need to do is do that 39 more times <laughs> over the course of the game and we'll be laughing. So it's a really simple recipe to success. But no, you're right. And that opening half with a couple of warts and all was brilliant to watch. In fact, the whole game was really entertaining. I don't think we can knock that. But as far as a first half of complete aggressive running rugby while taking your opportunities when they came up, it was wonderful to see. And it gave me so much hope and so much joy as a rugby supporter to see Australia playing in that way. Mate, my wife came in um, at the end of the first half and I just said to her, babe, uh, I, I don't know how I'm meant to feel here. She's like, what? What's happening? She doesn't really care about rugby. I was like, the Wallabies are winning. She was like, oh, really? <laughs> Which is so sad. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we're beating the All Blacks in Dunedin and we're up 17-3 at half time. Like, we're doing really well. She's like, well, good luck. I was like, yeah, we're going to need it. And that's the thing, right? Um, there's, there's so much that we can positively and justifiably be taking away, particularly from the first half performance, but also just from a general demeanor of improvement across the course of the rugby championship. Um, you look at the opening game against South Africa and how trash we were there, how bad we were against Argentina as well, because Argentina weren't good that night, and yet we still lost. And you look at where the team is now and you go, yeah, okay, there's there's a path forward, there's a trajectory, and it is clear that Eddie Jones is taking the team forward. They are progressing. You just got to wonder if it's too soon, the World Cup, as to whether they can execute on what he's wanting. But on that topic of trajectory do you agree that that's a cause for hope or do you think that maybe we're getting a bit carried away with what was ultimately a good first half performance that then the Kiwis caught back up yeah I think we're allowed to be excited if we temper that with a zero and four record so <laughs> we're right there has been a trajectory and it's but it's brutal it's brutal when you say it like that and that's what counts at the end everyone's yep. bagging ready for a 38 percent win record but Eddie's currently none from four yep. so early doors, but that curve that you're talking about, we need that to be exponential. And mm. we're starting to see signs that that isn't going to be the case necessarily, but it could be. So we maybe got 10 decent minutes in Rotoria. We maybe got 20 in Argentina. We saw a pretty good first half at the MCG. And this has been our most complete performance to date. It is a mark on our name that we couldn't get it done. That game was there to be won. And once again, we didn't have the ability or the game sense or perhaps even the confidence to take out that game that was there for the picking. So that to me is a black mark, but you're right. There's been improvement across the four games. If we keep seeing that, then I'm really hopeful that we can upset some of these big teams at the World Cup. Yeah, really well said. And we're going to be talking a bit more about the World Cup uh, after the Bledisloe chat, but why don't we start with what went well for the Wallabies? And that's honestly focusing on most things within the first half. So they were up 14-0 uh, within 12 minutes with tries to Marika Corambete and Tom Hooper as well. That Tom Hooper one was just an absolute peach of a try. And it came off the back of a Carter Gordon error, like the kick for touch didn't go out. Hmm. 
gets kicked back and then Nongani Tuase makes a half break to Kellaway off his shoulder. And then from there, we basically are able to just recycle through hands try. And it's really exciting to me that not only in that first try of the game were we able to execute clearly defined plays effectively, but also after that missed penalty, uh, missed, missed, missed touch finder, we were then able to play that unstructured way, like structure within an unstructured opportunity and then also score the try as well. That's something that we haven't been able to do so far this year. So I found that pretty exciting. And whenever we can pull off counterattack, it's just lovely to pinch one back on the ABs when that's their bread and butter. But we're seeing, I think, our back three in particular getting into better positions to affect play on the counter. We're not so reliant on just booting it straight back up or kicking it straight to a set back three. We're more willing to explore fine space. Maybe it's a shorter kick. Maybe it's along the ground. We've got a bit more variety in the way that we counter. And that's really exciting for mine. And I think Andrew Kellaway has had a really big part in that, having a settled influence at 15. And I tell you what, but he is really starting to come through as a potential lock for that 15 role into the World Cup. We're seeing a lot of really good out of him. But you're right. And what it came down to, aside from seeing a bit more punch with our counter, was our physicality. We Mm. were so aggressive, especially in our clean-out. Tom Hooper's nailing blokes, Richie Arnold or Skelton when he's coming on. You know, the the tight five was getting in there. The Lucys were getting in there. And it was aggressive. Rugby seems like such an easy game for Australia when our tight forwards run an unders line back towards the BNC, draw in a defence. And then you've got Marika, you've got Samu, you've got Pattaya running overs and around blokes. And we score tries for fun. It sounds so easy when they do it like this. <laughs> but whether it's whether we can put it together for this extended period of time. Yep. And that's yep. that's going to be our stumbling block, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. Why don't we um stay on Kellaway for a moment? Because you, you spoke to how good he's been. And I'm undoubtedly a Tom Wright fan. I've never liked the immense shade that he or even Tom Banks prior to him received. I thought there were really good elements to both of their games. But what we're receiving, receiving and seeing from Kellaway is the importance of defensive positioning and surety. He just doesn't make many mistakes at all. You can trust him the majority of the time to be making the right decision. And the thing I've been really impressed with is his support runs off the hip of the ball carrier when they straighten. So when they get their shoulders through the line, he's there calling, yelling for the ball, ready to receive it. And it's worked two or three times for clear breaks against the All Blacks over the weekend. So. Yeah, I'd agree, mate. For me, he's a lock-in 15 moving forward. Yeah, and I think what you're referring to, I think, is that bust from Nwanganitawasi bending mm. the line and then straight off on the left, Kellaway's barging up the middle. We see really good attacking runs from Tom Wright in broken play, but often we see him go lateral and he gets a rounder player and he's got great pace, he's got great footwork, but Kellaway probably has a stronger line when he straightens. And that's been really effective too. So it's not a knock on Tom Wright. I think he's got brilliant play in his game. And and so do the other fullbacks that we've seen in the past, like the Tom Banks, people who have trialed there. But yeah. the perception around Wright being somewhat of a risk is going to be his undoing rather than anything that he does on the field. That body of work's been built up against him by a lot of people in the media. And when Kellaway comes out with a couple of performances like this, which are largely error-free, which is safe, with a couple of attacking moments, that's something that speaks massively towards Kellaway being that starting 15. 
especially when you have Nolan Itawase and Corombete on the wings, because those are both uh, two incredible attacking threats. Um, Corombete is an all-action hero, and he's good for a couple of big hits a game, but he also can sometimes get caught out positionally or making the wrong decision in D as well. Not often, but occasionally. So having someone like Kellaway, who so far has just been a bit of a rock in that position, I think is really, really important. But why don't we move now to those forward ball carriers that you mentioned before? And you're right, I think it was the most complete ball-carrying attacking performance that I've seen so far this year from the Wallabies. And got to give credit where it's due. big part of that comes down to Pone Farmer Silly, adding that extra running threat uh, combined with Bell. Bobby Valentini was huge yet again. And um, Tommy Hooper was doing well. So... We've got that variety in our attacking ball runners, which means that we're getting that quick ball. So, yeah, Pone, for me, had an excellent game starting. He did. And look, as you mentioned, the forwards have been strong. I thought Nick Frost carried really well as well mm. when he got his hands on the ball. And we're, we're seeing it change from the Bobby V show, just truck and carry, truck and carry, and being that sole target for defenders to be able to gang up two or three tacklers on. And now you've got Frost carries, Pone carries, Angus Bell had another huge shift. Yeah. Um, we're seeing Fazler when he came on the field for an extended period, tuck it and have a crack as well. So we've got multiple ball running threats as well, and they attract those defenders in, and it gives us the space to go out wide. The, the punch and spread ideology gets taught from, you know, under fours all the way up, but it worked. Like we saw that in action in Dunedin, and it's so exciting to see us being able to have you know, up to eight at times, ball-carrying forwards who were able to get us over the game line or at least bend the line. Yeah, definitely. And just to throw some stats around because they're always fun, Bell, nine carries for 16 metres, but with four defenders beaten and two offloads. Farmer Silly, six for 14. Frost, five for 33. Tom Hooper, nine for 23 with two defenders beaten. Valentini, 11 for 46. And Faisler, five for 13. And like those, those numbers aren't insane, but what they're showing is that they're... Because, I mean, New Zealand defence is strong. It's physical. It is very good. So the fact that we've got um, a large number of players who are able to make those carries but also get over the advantage line within those and to make ground and not be driven back the majority of the time. Like Valentini's got this little thing where he, he sometimes used to get caught a bit upright in his carries, but what he seems to have developed over particularly this match, but I noticed a bit last week as well, was a spin within a tackle. So he'll take the initial mm. contact and then he'll twist out of it to change the direction of the force coming against him and then kind of get an extra step or two so he's moved forward over the tackle zone and it's easier for the clearing players to get over the ball and secure the ruck. Um, so it just seems that there's these little details that have been getting worked on within a team, which meant that, yeah, we, we actually had really good attacking forward players who were setting up a good platform. And like, I mean, I rated Jordi Pattaya. Who were some of the outside backs that stood up to you in terms of their running game? Look, everyone had a moment, which was great to see. I mean, Samu was still carrying strongly, had some good touches. Kellaway had his break. Corabetti scored his try. Marky Mark had a couple of good touches. So as far as the most players performing to their highest, is concerned, we had the best team performance, both mm. as a unit and individuals putting their hand up and taking their couple of seconds in the sunlight and going, this is where I need to go. Um, so that was really exciting to see. But then, of course, there's still little errors in the game. Like yeah. we mentioned, 
obviously Kyle Gordon's um, missed kick for touch eventually came back and worked for us. But we're still seeing a couple of drop balls. We're seeing a few missed kicks just in those key moments. And yes, things are improving, but those tiny little decision makings on attack, they hurt us. And if I'm honest, defense still is a big problem for me. Yep. Yep. So why don't you expand upon that? Why is defense so concerning? I mean, we've got some of the the defensive statistics here, but in terms of um, defenders beaten, New Zealand's had 27 defenders beaten with 13 offloads and six clean breaks. So it's painting a picture of, yeah, some some errors still to be worked out. Eddie Jones was saying in a post-match presser that I've only started really focusing on defense in the last week. Now, I mean, you, you got to know that's not entirely true. Of course, they've been talking D prior to this. But he literally said in a post-match presser, yeah, we haven't really been training D as a team for this championship. We, we've had other things we've been focusing on. Uh, I think there's probably a bit of Eddie Sprinkle in that. Yeah, but uh, yeah. <laughs> at least, at least the, as far as the media is concerned, they're putting an eye on it. I, I, I wanted to put the Bledisloe 2 game in the frame of the rugby championship as well when it came to defence and how it mm. feeds into our discipline as well. So I'm not sure if these stats marry up with what we've got on the screen, but chewing through it before, we had in the TRC alone a tick under 90 missed tackles, so 89, um, averaging about 30 a game missed tackles. And then we had, I think, 27 was what I had for the um, Bledisloe in Dunedin, round about that figure. So we're still averaging a huge amount of missed opportunities in defence that allow them to not only bend and break the line, but also is additional fatigue that we're not completing. Someone else has to come in and make that tackle. It's an extra bit of energy that's sapped and moved away. And with that, coupled with the fact that our discipline still isn't up to scratch, it's getting yeah. better in those last two. But we're averaging, what, 12 penalties a game just about. We had five cards across the TRC. I, we are still our own worst enemy in regards to our defence and particularly where we're giving away penalties. Yeah, completely agreed. And look, uh, I want to jump on that penalty point in a moment, but let's come back to it because that kind of is in the second half. And I just want to finish with the first half. Um, I think we can talk and praise what the Wallabies did within the first half really um, in a lot of detail and a lot of depth because there was a lot that was good and a lot that was impressive. But there were two moments that really stood out to me demonstrating where we still needed to really step up in terms of the execution when in the kind of opposition 22 or the red zone. And really that comes down to Pony Farmer and Tate McDermott's both being held up over the line. Uh, Tate McDermott's one was particularly egregious. It's just a moment of um, Artie Sevilla just being incredible. The fact that he's able to get across and to hold that ball up after um, Tate's been flipped onto his back. Any other day, he'd back Tate to score that all day long. But just these little moments that we're not able to execute. Imagine if we had two more tries. Imagine if it was 27-3 going into the half, and that's assuming there was no conversions. Um, it, it's an entirely different story as opposed to the 17-3, which is just two converted tries, which they re, they called back, what, within 10 minutes of the second half? Mm. Um, so now, quickly just moving into the second, they scored their first try in the 43rd minute to Sean Stevenson. Uh, do you remember in this moment, a little bit of a test for you, how they got down the field to be in a position to score that try? No, you've caught me on the hop. You have to enlighten me. No, that's totally okay. Uh, Pony Farmer Silly in their kind of 22 or about 30 yards out kind of thing. 
cops a bit, of a bit of friendly fire head knock and is lying all over the back of the ruck and gets mm-hmm. pinged for not rolling away. Fair enough, he wasn't rolling away, disrupting the ball. And then from there, another player, I can't remember who it was in this moment, line out, ball goes down, couple of hits up, another player doesn't roll away. Next minute, within about 30 seconds of being up their end of the field in their 22, we're now defending a line out in our own 40, in our, deep into our own half, which they subsequently score off about three or four phases later. Two back-to-back mm-hmm. penalties, both for not rolling away from a rock. Two of the simplest, simplest things that we just have to get right. I saw that happen a couple of times during the second half in particular, actually. Uh, mm. I noticed at least one in the last 10 minutes of someone being pinned for not rolling away. And whether that's just a, a lack of awareness or urgency, um, or there's a bit of you know, creative leg positioning from your opposition numbers. I saw that a few times, which is yeah, always yeah, that was a bit good. of fun to say. But I mean, you need, to, you need to get out of there. Referees very clearly stipulate roll away or use the ball or make an effort. And if you're not following that, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yep. Yeah, there were a couple of ones where um, if I was going to have a whinge, I thought they were a bit harsh in terms of penalties against us. But, uh, I mean, look, the swings and roundabouts. Uh, it was Carl Dixon, I think, that was a ref. He was fine. Yep. It was, it was I, even I, I throughout the game. He, I thought he did a really good job across the board, to be honest. Yep. Although, yep. I, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to it, but can we flag use of ball at the back of the scrum? There's a topic yep. of discussion. Yep, all right. Flagged. Definitely flagged. Um, we'll, <laughs> we'll clearly get to that because it is something that I want to pick up as well. Um, but let's now get to the idea of what changed within the second half. And I started off with that comment about giving away back-to-back penalties with, with the resulting gifting of field position. The All Blacks are too good to let them have multiple phases on, in attack in your half and you just keep conceding. And we the, the error count within the 40th to the 60th minute, don't exactly quote me on this, on that time frame, but it was seven to one against the Wallabies early within, the, early within that second half. So we'd given up seven penalties, seven of our 12 or so across the game, if I bring the uh, stats back up. Um, seven of our 13 were given away within the first 20 minutes of the second half, which just shows that either A, we weren't able to um, control things effectively enough ourselves, and then B, the pressure that's then put on us as a result causes us to give away more penalties because penalties aren't usually a result of discipline, they're usually a result of pressure. So it just shows there's still that, that element of controlling the game throughout the match or at least not giving away those penalties and being able to absorb the pressure that we need to work on so much more. I agree. But also what feeds into that is a lack of experience in leading games. So we've seen over the past few years, the Wallabies not often be in a position of dominance at halftime. I think the stand coverage pulled up a stat that it's the first time we've led in a Bledisloe game in four years yeah, at halftime or something similar. So this, this is unfamiliar territory for players. And it sounds silly that you feel under more pressure because you lead. But when you don't know what that situation is like in a game, how are you supposed to be able to react and be prepared for the different pressures that come from an opposition mm. chasing? Yep. So I think that would have played into it. You're almost putting yourself under more pressure and being led into more mistakes as a result yep. of a 14-point buffer. One that's quickly eaten up by an opportunistic team, then that's you know made twofold. So this, yep. for me, is going to be, out of the four games, not only was it the best that we played, but it will hurt the most and it will be the best learning experience by far. I think that we gain 
almost more out of this and have a crack if you disagree, but we gain more out of this game being a tight loss than it finishing at 20 all because that would yeah, paper yeah. over ability to finish a game. Yeah, I think so. I completely agree um, because draws just feel dirty. Nobody wants them. And this way it shows them that they don't get that sense of like the English moral victory after drawing the series to all, but not retaining the ashes kind of thing. <laughs> um, they, they can't walk away and go, oh yeah, but we didn't lose. It's like, well, no, actually we lost. We did some good stuff. We lost. We got to get better and we have to yep. get better. And that comment you made about kind of leadership and not knowing what to do. I mean, look at the starting 15 and tell me who the really experienced leaders, vocal leaders are within this team. Bell, no. Parecki, maybe. Farmer no. Frost, no. Arnold, no. Hooper, no. McWright, maybe he's captain at a club level. Valentini, yeah, maybe. McDermott, captain at club level. Carter Gordon, no. Corimbete, Karevi, maybe, but he's a pretty quiet guy. Tyre, quiet guy. No one to say, no. Callaway, maybe. Those are your 15. Actually, Faisal's on by this point. And no, he's, it's his debut. So he's not going to be talking up in the middle of, uh, in the middle of um, group huddles and stuff. So you, you say that they didn't know what to do. It's like, yeah, they, they probably didn't, or at least that there were doubts. And they needed, I wonder if they needed that core of experience to settle them and to just remind them of the basics. Something that like a Nick White or a Quade Cooper or a Michael Hooper, if they were on the field or available, or Alan Awatoa or James Slipper would have been able to provide. But for whatever reasons, obviously some injured, some on the bench just weren't there. Yeah, possibly. On the flip side of that, though, I know you've got all those players on that field who have no fear. You've got yeah. Carter Gordon, you've got Matt yeah. Fasler, who's come in with no test experience <laughs> and has put in arguably one of the best shifts from a hooker we've seen so far in the Wallabies yep, season. It was excellent. It's really, really strong. So you've got players playing with no fear and it's almost as if the halftime break is when you stop and collect yourself and that's when the nerves actually kick in. I wonder if that played any role in that. But, gee, you've got some players, despite the result, who are really putting their hand up and either locking in a flight to France or they're you know, pushing people off the gangway to get up to the plane. <laughs> There's, and that, that's a good thing. There's a lot of competition, isn't there? Um, why don't we do a couple more comments on the match before we then move on to looking ahead into the future? Uh, I think it's, it's worth noting, again, it's, it was a 4-0 uh, loss for the Wallabies it's so far in this international window. We can talk up all the positives we want from this game, but we lost. And New Zealand, despite having some pretty significant changes, particularly uh, within their forward pack, were able to come away and, and get the win. And I think a part of it was from what I saw, I'd love to hear your perspectives as well in how they got the dominance over Australia. But in my mind, it was they tightened up their carrying game and actually stopped trying to play with as much as much width and basically just bashed it with pick and drives up the middle, one or at the most two out from the ruck, sucked in the Australian forwards, tied them out, which meant they weren't as effective on the carry themselves. So when we had the ball, weren't getting that game line pressure too. So I found that was really, really significant. What in your mind or in your view led to New Zealand being able to get that ascendancy back? I agree with the attacking side of it, but also I noticed a significant improvement in line speed, um, particularly mm. um, through the midfield. So you saw a lot more pressure being placed on the pass from Gordon to Karevi or from Matt Wider to Pattaya, and that's when we started seeing a lot of drop balls wide. I mean, some of them, in my mind, were unforgivable, like the, the Cooper drop ball late. Oh. That was just that was a killer. It was really yep. tough to see that. 
especially yeah. after nailing that kick from, you know, what, 47, 48 metres out. Mm-hmm. So it was just, that was jarring to see. But the intensity of line speed pressure improved along with the, the carry structure. And I, we mentioned it before, I feel like a broken record, but what the All Blacks did was the model that the Wallabies used in the first half. They kept it tight. They punched really well under, and then there's space. There's acres out wide. So I don't know. Can we get a link to this to Eddie and keep it out of you know Fozzie's ears? Do you like him cheating? I just hope that we have nothing to offer. <laughs> they pitched our model and it worked. I thought, oh, for goodness sake. Yep. Yep. Completely agreed. And it just shows the simplicity of what can happen when you're able to execute on a plan. But uh, also, it seems that our bench wasn't able to bring the impact that it needed to be able to counter New Zealand's renewed energy and purpose, line speed, and and to bring that fresh, um, aggressive ball carry that we were lacking within that second half. So we had, obviously, Matty Faisler, who'd come on pretty early. Will Skelton didn't have as much of an impact on the game as I would have hoped for within it. Um, I thought Leota was fairly absent um with within the match when he came on and then slipper's not a renowned ball carrier and say nongo's what his second appearance for the wallabies and is something he's a baby um so you can't expect a huge amount from him either and then white and cooper are both making errors in the back line dropping the ball and making mistakes so you got your two most experienced players who are the ones making the errors it was tough. I thought Leota had some moments, but it it's not quite a like-for-like replacement for McWright, who mm. I thought had been busy at slowing ball down without being successful at pinching a heap. So he had some good moments over the ball, but Leota's not that replacement. No. He's not a seven. No. So it was an interesting mix to see us almost revert to a Bledisloe one back row of big bodies rather than having an on-baller. Yeah. Um, but... What the most jarring replacement probably was was seeing the pace of the game change between McDermott and White. Yep. So White is, you know, I would say that White's probably, outside of Slipper, with Hooper injured as well, the most senior player, the most experienced and the the go-to for these kinds of moments. And I didn't see White take control of the game as much as I would have liked, which was was tough to see because McDermott, I thought, was putting in a pretty good shift and challenging mm-hmm. around the right base. And, you know, first game as captain as well, there's a, you know, probably a huge amount of emotion and pride in that game as well. And White, while delivering some pretty good service, the kicks didn't land exactly where I'd hoped for. They weren't as contestable. And there were moments in that first half where because we had so much ball and were so effective with it, I'm looking at the second half and thinking, why aren't we trying to hang on to it just a touch more? You know, and rinse and repeat what was so successful. but it was just a, it was a tough thing to see us slow the pace of the game, possibly to protect a lead or a tight margin rather than try and advance it. And maybe I'm wrong, yeah. and maybe the mentality was, but it was, yeah, it didn't quite click with that as a bench. And it, and it seems that that's two weeks in a row that it's not clicked because it was the same last week when White and Cooper came on. I, I haven't been impressed by them coming off the bench. Um, I thought White's service. Uh, in terms of the pace of it, both last week and this week, was definitely too slow for where the game was at and what needed to be done. I thought all it did was allow the Kiwi defence to set and to be more, um, more. Oh, sorry, I don't want to say cohesive in that sense, but to set and be ready and able to push up with that line speed, whereas a faster delivery might have had them back on their heels a little bit more. I just, 
Yeah, I'm not too sure what the answer is there because McDermott's been really, really good. So I wonder if it's just the messaging to Nick White because he can play that sniping around the ruck game. He does have a rocket of a pass. He's clearly a better passer than McDermott, who's, by the way, his left-to-right passing is basically a headhunting missile. Um, he, he still needs to work on that. He's definitely got that as an area for improvement. But to his credit, mate, his box kicking was excellent. Absolutely excellent. And that's been a noted weakness. It was. Yeah, I agree. And you're right, because White has such a good running game when he pulls it out, and you see him be able to move around sort of the bandy legs sort of going, little Warrack sniping around, and he has these really effective moments in games where he shifts away from the delivery and he starts challenging. But we, we didn't see it. I didn't see that almost even considered on the field. There was a set, we're going to play territory, we're going to kick up, I'm going to deliver to pods, and the pace of the game slowed from Australia's attack. and. I'm not sure whether that is the best way to be able to manage games going forward. Clearly, they've got a plan in mind for how they want to run that, and this is the bench they've gone with the past two weeks. Personally, I'm not sure whether that's going to be the most successful model. And also, we've only seen these two halfbacks so far. When's your boy Ryan Lonigan getting a run? Oh, my boy, Jake Gordon, thank you. Um, i got a couple of boys. i got a couple of boys, except Gordon's just out of the picture now, mate. With that concussion, he's gone. Um, but yeah, it's, it's concerning, isn't it? Because if we don't see Ryan one again in a few weeks time against France, then he's not going to have any, any game time at all until the world cup. And what happens? Well, he may not even get game time unless there's an injury. And if there's an injury, then he's coming in with absolutely no match time this season with the players inside and outside of him, potentially in a quarterfinal or semifinal, Mm. which is concerning. Um, but I think that's a really good segue, mate, into what we can be predicting for the World Cup squad, which is going to be getting announced on Thursday. So these are always a bit of a lottery. And one of the things that I thought would be helpful is if I put a little bit of data to back this up. Okay. Now, um, you know what? Why don't I share my screen whilst we're doing this? Because it's the age of Zoom and it's the age of sharing everything. So I'm going to put this up. And I spent some time today where I wanted to go through some of the, let's go, here we go, added to stream. Hey, how good. Um, I wanted to go through just some of the appearances that players had made throughout the four matches so far this year within the rugby championship and see who had been used. And I've gone through and looked at every single player within each of the matches and then broken it up by position because I wanted to see who's basically cemented in and then who hasn't had much game time. And what we have is across the four games, you've had 36 players used. Now, I should know this. How many players are in the World Cup squad this year? Is it 33? 33. 33. Awesome. Okay. So he's used 36. He's used 36. And there's a few players that we can clearly say are out. So Alan Alatoa is Gonskis. So that means of the 36, 35 are possibly in contention without anybody else kind of getting parachuted in at the last moment so of those we look at the hooking stocks and it's pretty clear that you've got Parecki, Ulysi and Matty Faisler, Matty Faisler having only the one cap but looking in his one performance this week more assured than Jordan Ulysi has in my opinion so far this year so it wouldn't surprise me if you've got Parecki and then Faisler as a one and two and Ulysi as the third hooker thoughts on that part well, I mean, that's all we've seen so far, isn't it? We saw Lockie Lonigan and Flau Fiengar get a shot in Aussie A and Tonga. Mm. Um, and then outside of that, really, you're looking at maybe a, 
of Filetti Kaitu, who's overplaying NPC footy at the moment for the Marco. Yep. So it's a, as far as we've seen, that's probably the three that are in the frame. Yeah, which is pretty harsh on Lockie Wanigan, considering how well he'd done in a Dave Rennie era. But mm. it's obvious that um, the bench impact is so important to how Eddie Jones wants to be playing. And Ulysses is a bit of a man mountain. He's a glass cannon as well. And uh, again, in a post-match presser, the question was asked, oh, so can you give us an update on what happened with Jordan pre-match? He's like, oh, since he did his ACL, he's just got something that's not right. And uh, stuff gets caught and he spends some time talking to his knee and sometimes it sorts itself out and sometimes it doesn't. This time it didn't. I was like, what the hell? That's, that's very, a- very strange sometimes. <laughs> with, I, I've got to ask around, there's so much... So much has been put on Parecki over the past couple of years as well, who's relatively inexperienced in the test level, although he's played for a long time and has some decent runs on the boards mm. in Super Rugby. Yeah, that's three HIAs now Yeah, this season, I believe, for Parecki. Yeah. Is, is that somewhat of a liability, do you think, to take your starting hooker, presumably, mm. under that kind of concussion cloud? Was his injury this weekend HIA or shoulder? I thought it might have been shoulder-related. I'll have to double check. I was under the impression it was an HIA. Yeah. But you, you might reg- right regardless, he doesn't have a history of those head knocks. Yeah, he, he definitely does. And so, yeah, that is a concern, especially considering the condensed schedule. So, look, maybe I think you just have to risk it, though. It's just one of those things. Uh, looking, looking at it from a purely mat, match and game perspective, not talking about kind of concussion issues and the like. Mm. Um, if you're looking for the best players to be playing the most minutes, and Parecki is clearly the most experienced and most consistent player, a uh, hooker that we have. So, yeah, I think Parecki, Ulysses, and Faisal will be the three um, hookers that make the squad. And then with Alan Alatoa gone, you're basically seeing what Slipper, Bell, Falmasili, Tupo, uh, and then who else would it be? Slipper, Bell, Falmasili, Nongor, and Tupo as the five. Slipper oh, playing I, think, I, I think there's a decent shot that um, Sammy Talakai gets a bolt from the blue and he comes back in tension. I thought he had a really strong season for the Rebels. Yeah. Held his own over in Tonga Oze. And I mean, Zane Nongo is a very young prop. And mm. he's had some decent moments. And you can't judge a young tight head and a young prop on their games against South Africa in the high belt and then in a Bledisloe test. Yep. But I think I think there's a chance that Sammy Talakai works his way into contention. Yep, definitely. All right. Um, I want to give a bit of a shout out here as we get into the back row. I know I've skipped the locks for a second, but the, I mean, the locks are pretty easy. It's Frost, Skelton, Arnold and Phillip. Like it's, it's really not that much to kind of debate there in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the back Great. row though, the back row combination, you could genuinely make a case for Michael Hooper being on the edge being on the edge of selection because of what seems like an ongoing calf injury, like the absolute lack of communication about the severity of it indicates that things in my mind are probably worse than they were originally said to be. Um, and we've seen Tom Hooper have an absolute blinder and Fraser McWright do really, really well with the opportunities that he's had so far um, in his two performances. So. Does that mean that 
we pick two dedicated sevens within our World Cup squad. It's it's a really hard one. It is tough, and I think there's a balance of you know nostalgia and loyalty and priors that you have to weigh up against the recent form of rising players like Tom Hooper, like Fraser McWright. I think the emergence of Tom Hooper as a genuine six mm. is really changing how we view this back row. We're not going down the path of a double fetcher like we did in 2015. The Pooper theory is gone now because we don't have such a strong on baller as Pocock yep. to balance Hooper's wide running game. That's Michael Hooper. But because Tom Hooper has come out over the past three of the four games, obviously he missed the RGs, but he has carried the pill strongly. He's made mountains of tackles and he's been solid at set piece. Whatever farty mold they've discussed in the past and has been debated around that's your six, it's a second rower who's mobile and who hits hard. That's what we've got now in Tom yeah. Hooper and he's taken his shot. So is Fraser McWright. Mm. from Super Rugby and through these efforts. I'd say that we've seen enough from Fraser that he can play the seven role in a World Cup knockout game and you're not losing out. So Michael Hooper becomes becomes a bonus for me. If we can get him, it's fantastic. I think you almost have to have him around the squad because of the experience Mm -hmm. and the, the gravitas that he holds and the leadership that he can offer. But... I mean, that's it's such a tough call to make. I don't really see a world where Michael Hooper misses out on a World Cup squad for whatever reason. I think it's almost too big of a call. Yeah. I mean, even if he's carrying a bit of a niggle into it, he's got a couple of games because we're playing Georgia first, then Fiji. Georgia, Georgia Fiji, Wales, Portugal, I believe. Yeah, Georgia, Fiji. So, I mean, you'd hope he wouldn't be needed in the Georgia game. Um, Fiji... If we want any hope, we're beating Fiji. If we want any hope in this World Cup to get a good position, we're beating Fiji. And then Wales are the team who came away, by the way, with a surprising win against England. I was not expecting that um, over the weekend. Built on the back row too. Jack yeah. Morgan, skipped them that game, was unbelievable at six. Wow, wow. Yeah, I looked at their lineup and I was like, wow, there are so many players I don't even recognize. They've had a real changing of the guard <laughs> over the last 18 months. Um, but moving into the halves combination, I mean, White, McDermott, Cooper, Gordon, there's just literally nobody else that's played. And it makes you go, who's your third choice scrum half? I mean, Ryan Onigan, we're assuming. Um, Jake Gordon was going to be in France, but has now had to come home with a pretty serious concussion. So that essentially means that Ryan Onigan is the next up and he may well get into a World Cup semi or quarter and get caught up with absolutely no experience playing with the team. Wait, they're not picking Kerbala? What? <laughs> what are we talking will, about? <laughs> I will throw my Wallabies jersey in the bin if they pick Kerbala. <laughs> no, thank you whatsoever. But, um, but you're, you're right. And the, the spreadsheet makes it very clear, actually, now that you've put it up. We've only trialed these four halves. So who becomes the third option at 10 if someone goes down? Do we carry a third half back? Is that something that's going to be committed to? It's so up in the air at the moment. And for mine, even the players who could fill that third 10 role, like a, like a Reese Hodge, potentially like a Ben Donaldson, like a, like a Folio or Lolaseo, who are probably the only other four names that can be actively thrown up. Mm. None of them have played. None of them have had test time. Aside from uh, Foley getting some time over in Tonga, Maybe a James O'Connor, but I mean, he doesn't seem to be in the frame at the moment. It's so, so up in the air. 
Exactly. We've had Hodge, who started at 12 for one game before Karevi was back in mm-hmm. fit. So he started against South Africa, I'm pretty sure. Um, and then he has not even been in the squad since then. Um, in the 23, I should say, since then. And so it's, <laughs> do you go with Hodge as the jack-of-all-trades utility who doesn't get any game time unless there's an injury? Mate, that, that might well be the process that you go down. Because who else is there within a team that is in form and can also play 10? And I'd argue that nobody's really in form who can cover 10 in another position as well. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's Wade Cooper or Carter Gordon. Bernard Foley was not that good against um, Samoa when, when he played for Australia A. So I'd just be backing Hodge. You just take Cooper and Gordon, and if one of them goes down, then Hodge steps in and you hope the remaining fly half can play big minutes. Can you imagine the storms if someone goes down and you get an outcast Noah Lolasio shoulder tapped while he's playing for Toulon? I mean, there, <laughs> there are storylines waiting to happen here. We that see would some be amazing. That would be amazing. So hopefully that... Well, actually, no, I don't want anyone to go down. Um, but when we get into the centres, you can see Karevi has played every single game that he has been available for. So he was on a bench for South Africa and then has started the last three games. I thought um, his agility and mobility was shown up a little bit against the All Blacks um, on Saturday night. Or Saturday during the day, sorry. Uh, so that's something. He's still obviously coming back from a pretty serious ACL injury. So he, he will be better for this string of matches and now for the time before the France game and then training opportunities. But Parisi's been good in his showings. Iketau obviously coming back from his injury. Pataya has impressed me since he's returned back. So I think any of the options that we take there are going to be really, really solid. Yeah, that 13 jersey becomes really interesting. I think before Iketau's injury, that was probably the one position that was locked down yeah. in the entire back line, perhaps along with Corabetti, is yep. we've got an 11 and a 13. We'll build around that. And mm. having Ikitao gone down has really made it interesting. It's obviously terrible to see our arguably best specialist positional centre go down. But Pataya's put his hand up. He's had some great moments in the tack. Perezzi's had a pretty good job um, in the moments he's been on the field. So that's a really open race. And then do we look to someone who can cover 13 as well, maybe like a like a Kellaway. I know that they've run that at the Rebels before. I know that Hodges played there too. So it's this really interesting position mm. that's so important defensively. I mean, that's what the Tower is so strong at. Everyone talks about, you know, his ability to, you know, play to the left with a right arm fen, but his defense is rock solid. So yeah. who do we pick there going forward? That's going to be probably my most interesting storyline for the backs. Yep, very well said. And then we get into the outside backs, and it's a pretty clear story of Marika, no one getting to while saying Kellaway in my mind as you're starting back three, with Wright as another person on the plane there to be the backup outside back. Um, and then you probably you probably are looking at Hodge as that utility who can play one of the back three positions in a pinch if needed. Um, but yeah, we've just seen over the last two games that the Kellaway, Corimbete, and no one to while say back three are just undeniably the best back three that we can be playing at this point in time. And if Sui Vanavalu is on that plane, like I don't dislike the guy as a human being, but he does not deserve to be in the Rugby World Cup squad with only 33 places available. I'm, I'm really interested in your take. I've, I've clearly got your message on Vanavalu, but particularly around Peach and Donaldson. So I've seen yeah. this utility moniker being put on those guys along with Josh Kemeny, who's very clearly a flanker and a pretty good one too. But we've seen no game time out of Dono, who was out of form through Super Rugby for most of it. 
and Peach, who was up and down. What's their role that you see for them going forward? Do they get a spot on the plane? Is there maybe one spot between the two of them? Because I'm not sure what they play in Eddie's vision going forward. Yeah, look, I think I'd, I don't see them on the plane. I don't see them on the plane. And for those of you who are a part of the Pick and Drive Rugby Discord, um, I'm going to convince Joey Hoey, who's been on a pod a few times, to share his squad with the, um, the, the general banter thread um, because he has picked a really good 33 and he's got the same opinion that I think I have and that you probably do where for Peach, no, I don't think he's going to be making it. I don't think that utility thing is something that he genuinely, that um, Eddie genuinely thinks from a back playing in the forwards perspective. Um, you might have the occasional forward who can moonlight out in the centres if need be in an absolute pinch. Um, but for Peach, he's a out and out winger. And mm. our out and out wingers are playing too well for him to be able to surpass any of them at this point within the season. And then Donaldson, yeah. Him or Hodge, I think. It's either going to be him or Hodge. It will be on the plane. Um, but I'd be saying Hodge has probably got the runs over him just because of the experience that he has and the fact that Donaldson's form this season was nowhere near what it was in 2022. Very fair enough. I just think going through this list as well, I know we're talking about the backs, but I still my eyes keep going back to the props and James Slipper's role in this mm. World Cup becomes so important and so clear. He's the only co-captain left standing with yep. Alan Alatoa and Hooper both, you know, Alan Alatoa's out clearly and Hooper we're not sure about. He's your most experienced on the paddock now and he's probably going to have to play tight head yep. for long parts of this, which he hasn't done for a while. I mean, this bloke going to his fourth World Cup now becomes the most important member of the squad, in my opinion. It's wild to see this narrative of James Slippers over the past two years with him having his best Super Rugby season to date and now so much pressure around scrum time and set pieces on his shoulders with Tupo and Alatoa both under a cloud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it just goes back to that remarkable rise that he's had ever since he left the um, Queensland Reds under some pretty acrimonious circumstances and he, he's gone through a bit of the... Transformat personal journey, transformation, and kind of re-found himself again down at the Brumbies. He has just been one of the best ambassadors for the game of rugby in Australia. He is a gentleman. He is respectful, commands respect whenever you hear him speak, and has just this way when I hear other stories about him and his interactions with the younger players that just encourages them, speaks to the possibility of what they can be doing as a team. And you're right, without him, if he goes down our front row, is in absolute tatters and will be a really, really difficult thing to put back together and will probably be the weak point or the failure point of our whole World Cup campaign. And I don't, I don't think that's an overstatement. No, it's, it's huge. And I think worst case scenario, and touch wood, if, if he goes down, we just lasso Julio Montoya and pop him <laughs> in a gold jersey yeah. and make him play hooker. Yeah. And that's, we'll just pass it off until the end of the year and that can solve some extra problems. Yep. Without a doubt. Well, mate, um, any other quick comments about this World Cup squad or do you think we've covered it pretty well? I think we've covered it pretty well. And I don't, I don't want to end necessarily on the notes of, you know, we've lost the letters low with some positives. I think there's 
despite being zero and four, we're more energized after Dunedin. And I, it hurt seeing the game go, but I feel as though after that performance, there is a bit of hope and there's a bit of light that we can cause a bit of a stir at this World Cup. Obviously, we've got the game against France. I believe that there'll be a fair few Aussies going with the Barbars, plus there's mm. rumours around an Australia A game against Portugal as well. So there's other opportunities for players to put their hand up. But with players like Tom Hooper coming to the fore, Angus Bell coming back and having a big impact, Kellaway starting to really nail down the, the core roles of the 15 when he's been given that opportunity. I think there's cause for a bit of optimism. Or is that just the gold-tinted glasses that I've had on since birth? You've definitely been drinking the Eddie Kool-Aid, but I think not only are you partaking in that hallucinatory experience, but at the same time, there's a bit of truth that's coming within yeah, just it. A bit. Just, just a bit. There's enough. Smidgen truth. And, and there's enough that you can actually have a rational conversation argument about the fact that we do have a chance at the World Cup. It's a chance. We need a lot of things to go in our favour. Um, but we've re- return, players returning from injury have been pretty impressive, particularly Kellaway and Bell. Um, and Carter Gordon is stepping up. Tate McDermott's been excellent. There's just enough little pieces of the puzzle coming together at this right time where crumbs. if... Just yeah, yeah, if we can back it up with another improved performance against France in a couple of weeks' time, then there's enough there to say, yeah, okay. All right. Eddie had a pretty tough job. Uh, things didn't go to plan, but he's got us in a position where we, we can have a crack at this and we're a realistic chance of going deep into this tournament. And I think there's not much more we could have expected with the decision to change coaches, with what he had in front of him and the cattle he had available and the injury roster that he's had. Yep. I think there's not much more we could have expected. And as the South Africans have proven, you only need to win six games in the World Cup these days. So our <laughs> odds are improving every single day. So Portugal, we're going to gift you one, mate. Uh, yeah, that's you're welcome. You. Can, you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> um, well, on that note, on that note, why don't we finish it there? Lucky, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we started this podcast with feelings of despondency and just that, that, that understanding as a Wallabies fan of what it is to lose another tight game against the Kiwis, but we've ended it on a high note. So, mate, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. As always, same to you, mate, and looking forward to the next one. All right, go well, and team, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.